You're listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchat.com and the Teach Well Alliance. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I am Vicky Maguire. I'm an education and leadership coach. I work with school leaders to support them to improve their own well-being and that of all their staff. I also run group coaching programs for women leaders and I've created the Women Lead Well Coaching Network to provide a supportive network for female school leaders. We actually had our monthly call this week and I want to give a shout out to Helen Baker who is a deputy head in a high school with sixth form in Essex. And Helen came along, she's been part of our group coaching programme in the past, and she came along and delivered a session for our network, which was a great session. So I want to give a shout out to Helen on the show to say thank you so much, Helen, for your great session this week for the Women Lead Well Network. If the network is something that you're interested in joining or you know someone who would benefit from joining or you would like to find out more about the group coaching programmes for women leaders that I run, you can get in touch with me via email at vicky at weleadwell.co.uk and you can arrange to have a chat with me so that you can find out more. So here we are halfway through January, which I always find is one of the longest months of the year. For some reason, it seems interminable. However, I'm trying to find the positives in every part of the year. And this morning, we were able to watch the sunrise as we did the school uh, walk. (laughs) We were walking to school. And now I'm sitting bathed in sunshine. So I'm trying to enjoy the moment because maybe it will be pouring down with rain again tomorrow but I hope that you have found something to enjoy in January and I hope that part two of the interview that I have coming up with Adrian McLean will just help to bring a bright spot to your January because the conversation that I had with him was just another conversation that was actually full of positivity. Adrian is a a very positive optimistic person and I'm sure you're going to feel that in this in this interview today I mean we've talked about quite a few things the main one being how we can lead well by taking care of ourselves and how we can become better leaders as a result of better self-care and better well-being and that's emotional physical and mental health and we also talked about the collective the collective voice of leaders and how we could potentially work together to change things and do things in a different way. And we talk about values again. And this keeps coming up in podcast interview after podcast interview, how we have to lead from our values and how we can lead more ethically. So here's the interview with Adrian enjoy. Adrian McLean, welcome back to the We Lead Well podcast. It's brilliant to have you back. We didn't get through anywhere near enough stuff last time you were with us. So I asked you to come back so that we can keep our conversation going. We were just saying before we started recording how (laughs) we're both as bad as each other in terms of the amount that we can talk. So welcome back. Have you had a good Christmas? Yes, thank you for having me back. I'm I'm really sort of excited to continue our, our discussion wonderful break wonderful Christmas uh it's just nice to sort of really spend time with the family and spend time just decompressing and just doing fun stuff that sometimes you don't have the time to do when there's a busy term going on yeah do you know you need that don't you and I think sometimes in teaching and school leadership it's perhaps underestimated how much you actually need the holidays just to like you're saying to decompress to to rest and and relax I'm surprised really by how many posts I've seen on I think probably Twitter saying how guilty people feel because they've not done anything in the holidays I was quite shocked by that yeah and I I am but I'm not on the basis of that I used to be one of those people um and 
you know, as I'm sure as our conversation will uncover, it's one of the things that, that I had a shift in um, a few years back in that actually it's it's like the old adage of the oxygen mask, you know, on the aeroplane. If you don't put your own oxygen mask on, you can't help anybody else. And what I used to do and what you used to do and so many school leaders would do is they'd, they'd keep going and we'd kind of just work in six and seven week blocks and yeah. just go like fight all the way to the end and then collapse at the finish. And we can't do that. And actually, one of the things that I know that we're both passionate about is how can we reduce that sort of um, complex and, and compressed nature of stress in that short, sustained period so that we don't have to decompress in the same way and we have people sort of really struggling at the end of term. So yeah. it's one of the things I'm really passionate about working towards. It's, it's so interesting that you say that because when I do the, the group coaching uh, programme for women leaders, so many times we have, we talk about the challenge of actually just working, 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 and then doing all the relaxing or doing all the fun stuff in the holidays. But then it, it feels like you live in your life, like you're saying, in those six to eight week chunks of time where you just work and work and work and work. And then you only enjoy yourself in the holidays and that's not sustainable is it that's one of the things that I taught to the women about like as a leader that isn't sustainable and that really is how you end up at burnout point isn't it absolutely and it's one of the things I think is that is leading to the the head teacher crisis that we we have you know let's make no bones about it we have a head teacher crisis because people are saying well, who in their right mind wants to take on that 24-7 approach, 365? Um, and therefore, then we've got a number of other people who don't want to step into leadership, who are absolutely magnificent leaders. They have all the tools in the toolbox, but they don't want to do it because they see um, the, I guess, the myth. And, well, it's not even a myth anymore. It's the um, the sort of unwritten rules and expectations around what it takes to be a leader you've got to be the first car on the car park the last one off it and you know you don't have lunch and you know then you go home and you're working till 10 and 11 o'clock at night and then you're back in first thing the next morning but actually that's just stupidity and it's one of the things that I realized you can't do it you cannot sustain <laughs> you will kill yourself and you will kill any kind of well-being culture in your organisation if you do that and promote it. It's 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 just one of those things that seems to be like the unwritten law of leadership in in schools, isn't it? And I, I, I like you're saying, I did that. I worked for 60, 70 hours a week when I was, especially when I was back doing my first assistant head role. And it's unsustainable. And the flip side of what you were saying about people looking at leaders and going, I don't want to do that. I don't want to devote all that time to it. The flip side of that is that I got to deputy headship and then went, actually, I'm going to have to drop out because I'd got to I'd got to burnout point. And I've said on that, I've said on the podcast before that you think when you're doing that, that you can't possibly, well, I couldn't do what I'm doing now in X number of hours a week because it's just impossible. And yet when I separated from my husband and I became a single mum and I had to be at home to see the children onto the bus in the morning, then I had to be back at home to be making their tea and welcome them back from school. I couldn't work more than 45 hours a week. And surprisingly... (laughs) I managed to I managed to actually do what I yeah. needed to do yeah. in 45 hours a week but because I was forced to I didn't have a choice in that and that's that's the thing isn't it it's I, I always say to people you make the choice you are choosing to do that work now you've got to work out what the reason is for choosing it if it's something going on you you believe about yourself or you your worries about how other people perceive you like that idea you said about being on the car park first and leaving last but it is a choice isn't it yeah I think there's 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 so many intersectional elements that make make this up that have uh, have come to the fore over a long period of time um one of the things that I sort of look back on on my own journey is that 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 sort of denomination of hero leadership and that you've always got to be there. Well, actually, if you're a great leader, you don't need to be there because you've prepared everybody else 
And it goes back to what I was saying in the first one, um, where I talked about the, the, the impact that I had in my first leadership role and people were doing stuff when they saw me um, and they knew I was about rather than doing it because that was the right thing to do. And, and that's, that's where we want to get to as leaders. You know, if you're a great leader, your school or your department or your, your section that you lead should run like clockwork, whether you're there or not. Um, and it, it, it just, it smacks of that, that hero leadership of that it only works if I'm here and I'm here to save the day and it all goes wrong if I'm not around. And that's not leadership. That's not what we're, we're aspiring to um, and what we want to develop. So I think that's one strand. I think the other strand that has been around the accountability measures um, and again, it's really easy to bash um, Ofsted and the DfE about it, but we've kind of done it to ourselves when I think about it. We've allowed this to happen. There's, you know, there's 500,000 teachers in this country and there's 22,500 head teachers. If we all stood up and said, we ain't doing it, it wouldn't happen. Right? But we keep taking more and more on them and we, we get into that false sense of, we're doing it for the kids. Yes, we are doing it for the kids. And, you know, everybody, that's, you know, well, the vast majority of leaders that I work with and come across, yes, they are doing it for the children and for the good of the school, but at what expense? And that's what we, as a, a whole profession, we've got to look at and, and do better at. And, Adrian, I think what you have to look at is, have we changed education? Have we changed the lives of our most disadvantaged pupils not in the slightest so what we're doing yes professionals are out there working all the hours that god sends and nothing's changing so it's Absolutely. not making any difference i use this analogy quite a lot and it's like um the head teacher that i used to work with he was really dedicated he was such a hard worker he like believed in you know working 70 hours a week you know I know he'd be working Sunday morning and sending emails and whatever and in a way you know I, I don't I don't think what what word am I looking for I don't disrespect him for that I don't respect him for it and I can see why he did it but often I say it's like he's on a, you know, the stationary bikes, the exercise yeah. bikes in the gym. Yeah. And he's really, really going for it. And he's putting all the effort in these. And then the bike's in the same place. Yeah. It's not moved anywhere. The bike's still there. You've been pedaling all that way because all that effort and work that people are putting in, it's not making a difference. So we've got to do something differently. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you touch on a number of things that, that I fight passionately for. You know, I'm a big advocate of, of inclusion um, and sort of equity. Um, you know, I do a lot of work around diversity, equity and inclusion. But, you know, it, it's all about that equity mark for me is that are all of our children getting what they need? And, and the answer is no. Right. But to come back to where, where I was in in the last point was was around this accountability measures what we've got is that sort of that football manager culture whereby everyone's trying just to keep their job trying to keep their head above water so actually we're not going to get any systemic change because everyone's just trying to keep the wolf from the door and i'm speaking very broad and generally about that but actually what alternative is there because if you go down a different road that just going to rip up the rule book and somebody comes in and, and on that day they don't like what they see or they don't hear like what they hear that you're trying to do and you know the results the results aren't going to be instant they're going to take five to seven years that's what we know we know cultural change for it to be embedded and to it to be infected takes five to seven years I mean secondary that's that's a child coming in in year seven and going all the way through to sixth form. Leaders don't get afforded that time. If it hasn't happened in 12 months or 18 months, what are you doing about it? If your school's named satisfactory, um, or sorry, not satisfactory, requires improvement, yeah. right? you've, got, you, you've got 18 months basically to turn it around and that, that just can't be right. It cannot be right that we've got, yes, we, we need to improve, but also what I know working in schools that have been deemed inadequate and then going straight from there to a school that's outstanding, the margins between that 
are not great. They're, they're quite small, and it just needs a number of things to click into place at the same time for that to significantly change. If, I mean, you used a football analogy, and it's very similar, isn't it? Like, the difference between... I suppose League Two football and Premiership, in terms of the skill of footballers, it's not huge. Yeah. It's marginal. Yeah. But you look at a team like Brentford and you think, what have they done there? They've done something yeah. to get into the Premier League. And they've made probably small changes, but they've done something and that and it doesn't happen very often, does it? No. Like think, you know, I think football teams are like that tend to football teams that are in the Premier League tend to stay in the Premier League and then teams maybe bounce between League One, Two and whatever the conference is called now. Yeah. And schools are very similar to that, aren't yeah. they? They don't they don't really move massively. Like you don't see many schools going from like inadequate to outstanding. It, it's yeah. but there must be a way to do it. And there are some schools that have done it. But like you're saying, a lot of schools don't want to take the risk. Because... They, 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 just, they just can't afford to, can they? No. Yeah, there, there's so many things that are systemically wrong that we need to collectively do something around. You know, yes, if you sit, if you sit all the leaders in the, in, the, in the country down, they would all agree, yes, these things are wrong and they need to change. The problem becomes, well, how do we do that in a way that's meaningful, number one, and also means I get to keep my job um, because that's that's a big overriding fear for many people that they, they they will not be afforded the time to be able to to institute that change um, you know if you look at assessment for example now how is it that we allow we, we allow this to happen that a third of our children every year at GCSE cannot get what is deemed to be a good pass grade because of the bell curve and also then you know if you flip that to the the the, the Ofsted judgments which you know I have my own reservations about and, and that, that's for another day and another time but again not every school could be judged good or outstanding so how 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 are we leveling the bar for all of those people if you live in a certain part of the country you're more likely to be in an outstanding or good school than in some of us so we, we we can't we can't just have this sort of level playing field there it's got to be fluid do you know as well I was thinking I was listening to something I think it was a podcast I was listening to and one of the they were talking about um I think it was I think they might have been talking about unconscious bias and I thought, I wonder how many schools and how many children suffer from mm. unconscious bias. And there was a, there was a thing on it as well about uh, like labeling children, like labeling yeah. children as oh that's he oh he's a really naughty naughty boy, and you know how people uh, some teachers come into the classroom with a late that they label children. They've got that unconscious bias, and unless we have more training in diversity, equity and inclusion, we're never going to change that. We're never going to have people who think something and then challenge their own unconscious bias and do that and get into the habit of thinking, oh, actually, I've just, I've had a thought there that's not, that's not right. Because yeah. I, I think the more I listen to DEI podcasts or people talking about it, the more it makes me conscious of when I've had a thought and I've gone, and I'm embarrassed sometimes that I've had that thought, but I go, hang on a minute. Let me just let me just have a think about that and let me go through a process of recognizing it and thinking about it and addressing it. I don't think there's enough training in schools on DEI, to be honest with you. No, I mean, and again, this comes back to 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 where we started in that I completely agree with you. There's so much training that that we need to institute to our, our teachers, to our, um, our associate staff um, in, in schools, and particularly around on what you've just <laughs> mentioned there, unconscious bias and language. If you've grown up in a particular um, domain and area, and you, know, you, you will have certain experiences, without looking at, looking at life through the lens of some of the children that you may work with 
you, it's impossible for you to understand where they're coming from. And therefore, that makes it more difficult for you to, to build a meaningful and strong relationship with them. Because if you can't see what they see or the world as, as they see or can empathise with that, it's very difficult for, for you to understand the challenges that they face on a daily basis. So there, there's so many things, but all of that, I say all of that to, to come back to as a school leader, you, you know, if you, you know, let's say you're the head teacher, you have five inset days in which you can deliver training. You have certain uh, number of hours per year in which you can deliver training. How are you going to get all of these things that we need to do done in, in that time? It's so, so difficult. So I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't point the fingers at anybody to say, well, this needs to be the problem. Again, it's driven by your own school context. If your context is I've got to raise results, then guess what? Teaching and learning and behavior management, the top of your tree, and that's what's going to come first. Um, you know, we can all have our own viewpoints on whether that that's right or whether that's not. But actually, when you're sat in that seat and it gets very hot and you're the one who's responsible for it, you're the one who's got to call the shots, haven't you? Yeah, but the thing, this, like the same again, as we were saying in the last interview, the last conversation that we had, yeah. we talked about unless you get behaviour right in relationships, you can't, you can't do the teaching and learning. Well, I, I also think unless, unless your staff can eliminate that unconscious bias, I've had to work so hard sometimes. I remember when I was at... Um, one of the schools that I was assistant head at, and I came across a lot of, well, oh, that he's never going to achieve that. That kid will never get that, or that group of kids, that class is just they are never going to. Well, you can give those people all the teaching and learning training in the world that you want, but they're they're carrying that bias against those that those Great. types of children with them. So yeah, do you can do all, or you can teach them how to be brilliant teachers. But if they've got that, that kid's never going to achieve that, or those types of pupils never, never do well. You're fighting a losing battle, aren't you? hundred percent, hundred percent. And you know, you'll get no arguments from me. This is what I advocate for, and and feel that this is the direction we need to do. But I also am able to look at it from the realistic and other side of where people are at, and they're like, I just need to, I need to get this through. I need to get these results up. I need to do this that stuff's lovely and it's nice. And, and again, I'm sort of paraphrasing and stereotyping a little bit. That stuff's great, it's nice, but um, it's not top of my list right about now. And we'll get to it. The reality is you'll never get to it because that list will always get superseded with something else. So it's got to be in the, 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 the fabric of what your values are and, and your core DNA of what you stand for as a leader and what you want your school to be about. And that's the starting point. It has to be a, a central thing that that you do. Um, excuse the pun, unconsciously, or or you become to become unconscious in doing, we, without sort of having it being forced or or forced upon you because it'll never happen. But that's the thing with values as well, isn't it? Because a lot of the time, unless you bring those to the fore, unless you do some work on on those things in your school, in your context, with all your staff, like you were saying on the last episode, actually engaging the community and the parents in that. Because if unless you like, unless you do that, people are working unconsciously. Like people have got yeah. values, obviously. Like, but they don't always necessarily know what they are or what they're working towards or they don't know what values they share with everybody else in in that environment in that school so unless you bring that out agreed and those two things sort of work together because once you bring those values out that and make it a conscious thing and you make it you actually make it clear these are our shared values this is what we're working towards then that's a conscious thing that staff are doing isn't it and once yeah, something becomes conscious and you actually think about it, then you can start making a difference to things. Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, what all people who, who work in, in, this, in this area advocate, don't they? They say, you know, this is what we do around here. This is how we do stuff. And the challenge goes to all members of the school community to say, that's not acceptable in our school, in, in our academy, in our trust. We won't have that. We won't, you know, we won't tolerate that. 
and this is how we will deal with it so you know for example if you've got parents who who complain about particular um punishment for for their child because they've broken one of those values or they've not lived up to them um you know parents will often defend their child and say yeah but you know they only did no 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 that's not what we're about we're about doing x y or z and this is what we're trying to instill in all of our young people within our community um, so that they respect that and that they could go out into the wide world and deliver that and know why that's important um, you know and also you know conversely going back to a member of staff and saying actually you know the way that you dealt with that situation doesn't meet our school values and you know we're not happy about it. how are we going to move forward with this and how are we going to address it so it doesn't happen again you know th those are the key things because then you're not you're not calling out somebody personally you're calling out their behaviors and their their attitude that's not meeting the values that are, that are, are universal and transparent to the school and like you say I, I, and we talked about last time as well it's not put, like you don't put a ceiling on achievement Absolutely. But, that, but but that's in conflict with the the way yeah. that exams are now graded because yeah. only x percent of pupils can have this grade even though you might have met a standard that in a previous year would yeah. have allowed you to achieve that grade because this year it's a i suppose maybe it's a it's a you know a, a more intelligent cohort you can't have that grade and it yeah. and it goes against what we're trying to create in schools that sense of you can achieve anything if you put your mind to it absolutely you know you just reminded me of um something that happened to me at school my, my history teacher um she told my she told me and my mum at a parents evening that I would amount to nothing and I'd be signing on in the in the job center all right so a smile sort of reticently to, to say well you were wrong um and you know and if I'd have been less of a character I would have accepted that but my competitive nature was like oh really you think so okay I'll show you um and here we are but for many kids that would have been the sort of like a, a dagger to the heart for them Ugh. and and so that, that reinforces the point that you're making absolutely you know one of the things that I always talk to to staff and anytime I deliver any training is, is language and words are really powerful and the words we use can inspire or deflate a young person in an instant and you can never get them back sometimes and sometimes you, really you, you like you don't even notice you're doing it I, I've had lots of lots of ex-pupils get in touch with me and say great things I you know they thought I was a great teacher or they've become English teachers themselves and have been inspired by me, blah, blah, blah. But actually the things that's had the most impact on me probably is when one student got in touch with me to say, you said something to me on a corridor once and it was, it, it really affected me. And it was, and they'd been really upset by it. And I, I don't even know what that incident was, yeah. but that just made me think like, I mean, it's years ago now, it must be 15, 16 years ago. But it made me think, wow, you've got to, everything you say to a child, it's got to be conscious. You've got to think about what you're saying. And like yeah. you're saying, they're the power of it makes me shudder when you say things like that, that someone would ever, ever say that to a child. Just, oh, it makes me so angry. But the power that you've got in the words that you use and the things that you say to young people when they're shaping their own sense of self is just that you have to understand that as a teacher, don't you? That you can't just make offhand comments that yeah. insult <laughs> that insult children yeah. because of the power of, of the words that you use with them. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it goes back to, to where, where I started from about understanding their experiences of, of the children that you work with you know if they go home and at home all they hear is negativity 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 they're going to be very different and um I, i'll use the word but i don't really want to is and they're going to be less resilient to to that sort of feedback or comments from from another adult 
because they'll be like, oh, well, that's just another person that confirms that I'm stupid or, or I'm, I'm not very bright, I'm, I'm this, that or the other, or I'm just not very good, I'm just a pain to everybody. Conversely, if you've got somebody who goes home and they're told all the time, you know, how good they are and they're given real positive reinforcement, when they get that negative reinforcement, they can take it in the context that it's meant. But unfortunately, you know, particularly across my career, the children that I work with generally come from inner city, generally come from backgrounds whereby they're pupil premium. And again, I'm not saying it to make a sweeping statement, but the the level of um, support from, from home and the positivity from home isn't the same. So it means that you're, you're dealing with more complex characters and you've got to know and pick your spots of when you deliver and how you deliver those words of, um, of affirmation or words of, of sanction to them. And as a leader, it's really important to address with staff if they do if they have said things like that to children or sometimes that's their attitude towards the pupils as a leader it's your responsibility to address that with with those members of staff isn't it and that's a difficult conversation don't get me wrong but but you have to do that don't you yeah and 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 again you know i i I don't have a problem with that because again i think it's about how you frame that conversation in your own mind if you frame it as it's going to be a difficult conversation, then it will be. Yeah. Um, I always say, you know, and, and like I uh, intimated earlier, I bring it back to this is who we are. This is what the values that we stand for in our school. You didn't operate within those values. How are we going to put that right? What support do you need? What help do you need from me? And, and framing it in that way turns it around. So it's actually, it's non-threatening. It's actually within that person. You're not attacking them. You're saying, this is the parameters that we work within and you weren't within them. So how are we going to put that right? How are we going to make sure that this doesn't happen again? And then that gives them some ownership and to say, well, I need some help or need some support. Um, and then we can, we can work together to do that. Um, and I think that's really, really important that, that we, we use that. And that's what I find is a, a real strong point of using values as a school, saying this is what we are about and this is what we stand for and this is how we operate. And if we do that, then we can praise people for doing it and demonstrating it. But we can also bring them back and say, actually, that's not in the spirit of what we're, we're, we're building here. That's not our culture here. Before we discuss school cultures further, I'd just like to tell you a little bit about our partner, Head Teacher Chat. Head Teacher Chat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of Head Teacher Chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first school leader planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Head Teacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Head Teacher Chat. It's what head teachers are talking about. Now let's get back to the interview. It's interesting that you come back to culture because I do leadership performance coach, the leadership performance coach role for MPQSL. And a couple of the modules now, there's one on ethical leadership and behaviours, and there's one on culture and ethos. And I find it really interesting that, you know, it is government-led, the MPQSL, the content of the curriculum. And I find it interesting that we're moving towards more ethical leadership. And I think it comes from, you know, years of, of being in a high-stakes account, like high-stakes accountability has created schools in which sometimes ethically or morally they're on the edge of, you know, is this actually the right thing to do? Um, and I'm wondering how, as a leader, how do you, like, how do you feel about the, that ethical, cultural, how can we promote that better as we've got leaders coming through? I think that 
That's a great question, and there's no one straightforward answer. I was just I thinking think... it was a terribly worded question. No, no, I think it's a great way question. too long I to get to. I, I, I got, I got it straight away. I think it, it's about all the things we talked about, starting where you mean to go on, right? And if you have great role models in front of you that you can learn from, then you will pick that up, and then you will take it and you will run and you'll take it to a new level. However, as you've you know, quite rightly intimated, that's not where we're at at the moment across the board. We have some people that are, are doing all the things from an ethical and moral standpoint. Um, and then again, we've got some people that, that, that aren't. And again, we, without wanting to just continually bang on about the same thing, but it's an easy one to, to, to use as an example. Um, it's about accountability measures. If you come in and you take over a new school and you've got to improve results, the easiest thing to do is to go, right, who are all the kids who are going to drag my results down? Get rid of them. And that happens, and we both know it happens. And loads of people who are listening know it happens. Yeah. Right? So that happens. And we have to ask ourselves, is that ethically right? And then more importantly, is that morally right? And we need to do something about that. So that, that's the case of, you know, the challenge comes from from all the authorities there of the how have you done this you know there's there's lots of people um who have used that model and then therefore have been celebrated as um models of success um and they've got you know recognition in terms of mbes obes knighthoods schools and, and schools that uh, discourage sen pupils from applying yeah, yeah. as well I'm you just know, clearly clearly at open go to the one down the road they'll say yeah that this other school oh they're brilliant for sen you know you'd be much better sending your child there yeah. like so so unethical isn't it yeah so so it comes back to what 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 are we about as educators what what are schools about and it's become about results you know that's not, not make two bones about it it's become about results actually i think we have to go back a little bit and say what is the purpose of education and i know that's a huge philosophical question but purpose of education for me is to make sure that the the generation that is coming up are given the knowledge given the information and given the ability to operate in society and and take it to the next level you know whatever that looks like you know, however, we we're very hung up on exam results. Um, and yes, they're important, but they're not everything. You know, I, I say this to my own children all the time. My three girls, I say to them, you know, I want you to do well at school. Obviously, I do. I want you to work hard. But if you don't get the best exam results, I don't I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to beat, beat myself up about it. And I'm not going to give you a hard time about it because I want you to be a better person. I want you to be the best person that you can. Because again, one of the other things that I think, yes, it's important that we try to, to get our children to a point whereby they, um, they achieve by the end of year 11, you know, or, or whether it's a primary school, whether you know, at the end of year six, that they're at their best point when they leave you to go on to the next stage. But that's, that's the point they're at their best point at that time for who they are. So I know people who, who, who I've taught who didn't do very well academically at school and then they left school and then went out and they, they bounced around a little bit and then something clicked and then they got it together and then they got what they needed to be where they wanted to be. We, we know this as educators, learning is not linear but yet we try to measure it in a linear way. It just is almost nonsensical in some ways. I get, I get why we have to do it, don't get me wrong, but I, I just challenge that how can we write off people at 16? How can we write people off at 11? And I'm going to make a confession now, and I, it's that I watch first dates, and I'm really <laughs> I'm a bit <laughs> obsessed with it, but I was watching the Christmas episode last night, and there was a young lad on there. And honestly, he came across as 
a really lovely, lovely lad. And he was a children's entertainer. And then he was a Santa at Christmas and he loved it. And he was, he was such a positive person. But it struck me, one of the things that he said was, um, you know, I've never really been on dates and I, and I don't think, you know, girls really, you know, they're not impressed with someone who's got e, D's, E's and F's at GCSE. And it made me feel so sad that, that that's actually how he views himself. Like there were so many positives. He was so lovely. And yet he was actually defining himself by, oh, I'm a DEF sort of person. Yeah. And I thought, how terrible, like character wise, he was a, you know, he was a really lovely, clearly like a really lovely person. And yet that's how he identified as somebody who was not very intelligent. Yeah. And, and I love that you brought that up because where, where I was going with that is, is the fact of that it's more important that our, our young people develop particular character traits um and we say that that's what we want in our education system but it isn't at all we don't do it you know and again it is a sweeping statement but on the whole we say we want our young people to be creative no we don't because our methods don't allow <laughs> creativity no right we want them to we want them to, to 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 be innovative no we don't because you have to demonstrate what's gone before and how you're going to do it based on set rules you know that that's that's the premise of what we've got um so but that's completely at odds with the real world you know so you know i use an example of that um and and you, you might shoot me down because i'm going to use an english example here <laughs> um so in english you have to write me a four-page essay on you know, what it is that you're going to do for um, your, your future career, as an example, right? It has to be four pages long. That's the criteria. But in the real world, you go there and you get in front of the bus, you got 30 seconds to pitch me your idea. Yeah. Right? I, 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 I totally agree with you that the, there are, when, <laughs> when you teach children about doing the English write that like the English language writing section you say well really you need to be writing three pages if you write one page that you yeah. probably won't you're not going to get a, a grade nine if you only write one page but why not if you can show the skills yeah. of someone who's got a brilliant vocabulary can use um you know language really cleverly really succinctly why why can't you why can't you get so you, you're right we constrain our children because we say these are the hoops that you have to jump through and if you do it in a different way like if you go around the hoop well you're not you're yeah. not going to yeah. it, it's a it, I, I always I always think with my children I've got two boys and neither of them are they're both bright really bright but not academically like they don't enjoy the academic um work but if people say they're nice they're good they're my, my older son's been washing cars and he's had lots of comments on facebook to say what a nice lad oh it, it, james came and washed my car and he was brilliant what, what a lovely what a lovely lad i'm happy with that yeah yeah you know does it does it matter whether he got grades fives and fours or grades sevens and eights or does it matter that people think that he's he's amenable and that he's you know that he's able to engage with people and that he's a nice person yeah absolutely and I say that about my own kids and my, some of my proudest things within education have been you know those raw materials of kids who people have as you mentioned earlier have labeled and said oh they're they're vile they're horrible you know how have they managed to to, to last this long in school and they've gone out and sending them out into the world and then they've come back and they're a good person. That's what makes me, that's what makes me buzz. That's what makes me tick. That's what I get the greatest satisfaction about is, is seeing those young people blossom into great people. I don't care whether you can tell me Pythagoras' theorem or whether you can write a four page essay or whether you can do a science experiment I don't, I don't care about that. 
you know, what I care about is, are you a good person? Are you offering something out there to the world? And I mean, that's the thing that is really, really important. And I'm being a little bit flippant when I say that about that those things don't matter. Of course they matter, but in, in my mind, are they as important? Because we can, we can learn those things. And again, there isn't a time scale in that. For some kids, you know, I'm having this, I'm having this debate with my own uh, daughter at the minute. She's in year nine and she's like, she's going through the math syllabus and she's like, what's the point in this? I am never going to use this ever in my life. <laughs> And, and I can't disagree with her. I, I can't. But it's the same with Shakespeare, isn't it? Why, why yeah. are we studying Shakespeare? I'm never going to, you know, and I have, I have struggled in the past, but I think it's about balance, isn't it? And I think as school leaders, in terms of sort of that, coming back to that ethical leadership, it's about creating balance. And it's about thinking, what sort of person do I want to be, am I role modeling to the pupils and to the staff in this school what it is to be human? And that yeah. that sort of the idea of humanity. And for me, like everything comes from compassion and kindness and love. And that's, you know, they're my my core values. And if I can lead, it took me a long time to realize that I can lead from those values. Yeah. You know, having those values and making them the center of what I do. I thought that really wasn't possible as a school leader because of what I'd seen role modeled. Yeah. And it took me a long time, probably doing the RLE actually, that made me go, hmm, actually, I can I can lead from those values. It's not being weak. It's yeah. not being like too nice. I can lead from those values. And that that's why values are so important because you have to know who you are and you have to be able to have your own set of moral principles and your own ethical framework that you're working within to be able to set that example. And I suppose we talk about leadership presence, don't we, on the resilient leaders yeah. elements. Um, and that is so important to have that, that presence that comes from you knowing who you are and, yeah. and the values and the ethics that underpin your practice. And that, that's the key, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And also, also, you know, again, another plug for the RLA, the awareness <laughs> element, you know, being self-aware. Yeah. As we talked about um, on, on the, the last episode, is that how many people are, are aware of what's important to them? How many people are just going through the, the sort of running around on the treadmill just to do what's what needs to be done there's no passion in it or there's not a great deal of passion in it. they're just doing it to get it done and it's not why they came into the profession for it's not why they came into working in schools they're just doing it to get done because it's a mundane task that has to be done um and and i reckon you know as you said earlier there's so much more training that we need to do and i think as as school leaders we we need to showcase and put the, the spotlight on on our staff and say who are you and more importantly who do you want to be because that's how we're going to make all the changes that we talked about that's how we're going to inspire people well what's happening now again I'll, I'll be very flippant about it, is people get put in a box and they have to deliver to a certain spec that's not that's not great. That's that's why our profession hasn't moved on at the rate that it should have done. You know, in 150 years, what's what's different? Not much. You know? well, we, we, I mean, we've gone backwards, really, haven't we? I think in a lot of ways. I think um, Michael Gove is blamed for a lot of it, but I have to say, I'm putting out there probably probably not a good thing. I'm you know, <laughs> no, I'm not doing myself any favors. But it's Nick Gibb. Nick Gibbs Gibbs the one who's the grammar school wants everything to be about knowledge and learning and rote learning and and he's pushed that agenda for years and it doesn't matter who the education secretary is he's kept his position and things are not going to move on you know for me things have gone backwards we're not teaching children yeah. about what I mean what jobs are, are children going to have in the future that's a totally different episode but what I was yeah. thinking was in terms of leadership um I was thinking like 
I remember being asked on an interview, I had to do a presentation on the difference between leadership and management. And it's interesting that you just said then, and I was thinking, I don't know why I started thinking of this when I was in bed a couple of weeks ago, I was lying there thinking, oh, what's the difference between leadership and management? And I thought, do you know, you question words, who, why, what, where, how, um, when. I thought management is about the, the where, the what, the why, the when, isn't it? But leadership is about the why and the who. Yeah. Like who who yeah. are you and why are you doing what you do? And then like how do you how do you actually bring people on board with that and get them to understand it as well? Yeah. So I'll, I'll take that a step further. I have a, a quote that um, I don't know who it came from, but I've got it um, and a laminated um, sheet of paper on a picture. Um, and it says you you manage things and you lead people and that's something that I always work on the premise of and I have it there just just as that always that reminder of that okay what have I got to manage today and it's tasks and it's you know whether, whether that's uh, an invoice needs to be paid for somebody or um we need to source something that's managing stuff. You know, leading is about literally your presence and how you talk and interact with people and how you demonstrate the values of what you want and the way things are done around here. And leading is about making those difficult decisions and having those, those conversations whereby we say, okay, our people premium strategy is not working. What are we going to do about it? Let's get the blank piece of paper out. That's leading. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's a, another great question. <laughs> I, I want to ask you now because I wanted to ask you this last time. I didn't get round to it, and I'm concerned that I might not get round to it again. <laughs> um, because I think one of the things that you really focus on is intuition, like yeah. leading through your intuition. And I wanted to explore that a little bit because it's something that seems a bit abstract so what 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 do you mean when you talk about leading with intuition okay so it's it you'll have to bear with me because it might sound a little bit out there to start with but we all have this little voice inside of us and you know some people depict it as the angel and the devil or someone you know people give you a, you know give that voice a name or an alter ego and so on and so gene forth. mine's yeah. gene <laughs> so, gene so, be quiet so we, we all have that you know we all talk to ourselves and that's that's good and that's healthy but that's your intuition right and you, part of your intuition for me is and again i'm not going to you know get into a whole definition and, and all of that sort of stuff this is what it means to me and this is how how i use it um it, it's about that voice that's inside you that that talks and the feelings that you get so i can remember um early in my teaching career i went for an interview a, for a job and on paper it was a great job and uh, yeah it, you know and what everything walking around school it was great but there was something that wasn't right. I had this feeling. I couldn't explain what it was. And I just felt ill. I, I, I couldn't explain it. I felt really ill and sort of really like off kilter. And I just couldn't focus. I was like, no, this isn't, this isn't right for me. And I withdrew. And, you know, that was a, it was a huge thing because, you don't go on interviews and you, you withdraw after half a day. And I just was like, no, no, this isn't right. And I, I couldn't explain it. Um, but then down the line, uh, it was about a year down the line, lots of stuff come out about that school, about the culture and lots of things that were going on that I, that I wasn't privy to and nobody was aware of. You know, on paper, this was a great place to work. But it, that's when I kind of was like, oh, something was telling me that that culture there isn't right for you and there's and I think that's really important that you your your head will tell you something so the factual side you know everything stacks up on paper 
everything stacks up in terms of salary, your responsibility, all that sort of stuff. But then you've got the other side, which is feelings. And you, you, can't, you can't put anything tangible on them. You just get them. And I'm a big advocate of getting people to listen to that feeling, that voice, and listen to the voice that's inside of you because you can make some real bad mistakes. Again, um, going for a deputy head post, I didn't want the job. I went for the interview. I didn't want the job, right? And I'm like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then it was no surprise that um, I got asked to leave halfway through the process because I, I wasn't there. I wasn't at the races. I've applied, I applied for a, a, another role, um, a senior vice principal in the establishment that I had. I didn't want it. And therefore, I, I wasn't me. And my intuition, again, I got those hot flushes and I just felt ill. But I did it. I, I went through the process because it was expected of me. And that was the last time, that was in 2016, that was the last time that I stopped listening to my intuition. Well, no, I tell a lie. It's the second to last time that I stopped listening to my intuition. Um, and... It was a case of that I didn't want that because I wanted to be a head teacher. I didn't want to be somebody's number two. I wanted to be the head. And so that's the route that I went down then. And the last time I didn't listen to any intuition was when I became a head teacher. Yeah. I got offered a job. And basically, to cut a long story short, I'd already resigned from my, um, my current post because I knew that I needed that push. I knew I needed to leave. There was no way I was going to leave if I didn't do it. So I got to the point whereby I was looking at not being employed and a little bit of ego took over. And um, factually, I listened to my head rather than my intuition. My intuition said, do not take this job. I took it. And within six weeks, I massively regretted it because the whole culture of the, the, the multi-academy trust that I worked for wasn't in, in line with mine. All the reassurances and the assurances that I'd been given to take the role, they all disappeared. And I was then left, for want of a better phrase, holding the baby. And I was just massively, massively unhappy. So from that point then, you know, I swore that I would always listen to my intuition about things. And I think it's, it's really important that we do. It's interesting, isn't it? That but the times when you don't listen to your intuition, I, I think sometimes leads you, maybe, maybe you don't listen to it for a reason on those occasions. Because I look back and think my intuition was telling me things when I took my job as a deputy and I didn't listen to it. And I think there was a question um, on leading uncertainty. I'm doing the, the training for that now with Arely. And we were doing what's the worst decision, the best decision you've ever made. And it's interesting that if I look back on that, I could say, well, that was the worst decision I ever made because I didn't listen to my intuition, but it turned into the best decision that I ever made really, because it's led yeah. me to where I am yeah. now. So it's yeah. an interesting, Agreed. You know, if I'd if I'd listened to my intuition, I might have ended up back at the school that I was at, where I probably could have stayed for the next twenty years until I retired. It was like quite a. I mean, it probably wouldn't have been because they ended up in special measures in the end. So maybe um, not as cosy as <laughs> as potentially it might have been. But it's interesting, isn't it, that there are times when we do listen to our intuition and we go, and then there are other times when we don't and it teaches us things and it leads us to different places. Yeah, I, I, again, you know, to, to, to almost contradict what I've just said, I'm <laughs> a big believer in, in that things happen for a reason and there's a lesson that they happen because you've got to learn a lesson. And I think my lesson that I needed to learn was that I don't, I'm not meant to be a head teacher. And that, that might sound a little sort of um, arrogant or whatever, but I needed to go through that process to understand that that's not where I'm going to be at my best. I wanted to do it. 
right? And I was capable of doing it. Uh, yeah, I'm, and I'm still capable of doing it. But actually, I wasn't doing the thing that was going to enable me to live the, the best and also present the gifts that I have and the ability that I have in the best way. So uh, that's a lesson that I learned. And again, to, to echo your point, if I hadn't have gone to that, I wouldn't be in the role that I'm in now. Yeah. So going right back to the very first <laughs> episode and the start of our conversation, which was tell the listener about who you are and, and what you did and what you do. What do you do now? Because I don't think we've we've actually I don't think you've actually told the yeah. listeners what it is you do now. <laughs> So I, um, I lead across the multi-academy trust. Um, so I, um, up and for, for two years, uh, I've done that role. This is my third year in the role. Um, and I led across character education um, and, and, and behavior really. Um, and, and sort of getting schools and to, to really fortify and, and strengthen that character education approach. So character education, for those of you who might be sitting, what the hell is that? It's about all the things we've been talking about throughout this podcast, about values and, and basing a, the premise of everything that we do on those values and, and, and ensuring that we, we teach our children those values explicitly and we create a culture that enables them to catch the values um, explicitly as well. And then hopefully they're going to seek out opportunities to do that um, and to, to um, almost deliver them and, and live those values in, in everyday life. So that was, that was what I was doing up until um, the end of last academic year. This academic year, um, because I'm a, a sucker for this sort of stuff and I'm really passionate about it, I've taken on um, the role of inclusion as well because... I think it's it's massively important and you know we touched about it a little bit earlier um vicky in that it's i think it's really important that we do something different um to what we've traditionally done yeah. for our people premium students for our children with send for our children that are struggling our children that have, have got some of those those issues of behavior and maybe don't have the the support networks that some of our more affluent and more capable um, young people have. So it's it's about that. So I've taken on this huge sort of project around, around that to, um, to, to kind of shape a vision of what we want it to look like. Brilliant. Well, I think we've come full circle there. That's amazing. I would definitely get you back on the podcast at some point <laughs> in the future, because there's still so much more for us to talk about, I think. Um, but thank you so much for joining us again. I feel like we've we sort of come to the end of that conversation. We needed yeah. two we needed two full episodes to do it, but I'm sure that people will have listened to that and I think gained much more of an understanding of that idea of ethical leadership or values based leadership as well. I mean, it's something yeah. I bang on about all the time in my podcasts. So you'll you'll know. <laughs> it's yeah it's there it's a it's a constant theme through everything because i just think unless you know what your values are you're going to hide into nothing really yeah absolutely and again going going back on that it's like if you don't know who you are it's almost again going back to that oxygen mask analogy you you can't help anyone else you can't you, you can't you can't point out where their sort of shortcomings are because you don't know your own um, you can't point out where they're doing really well because you don't know your own um, you don't know and recognize it yourself and we we have to as teachers uh, as leaders you know and, and I believe that all, all staff in schools are, are leaders of, of various levels um, we have to to lead by example and to do that you need to know who you are um, and how you fit into the organization and and whether you fit with the values of the organization which are, again you know massively important you can't you know as i outlined with, with my my headship i left because my values didn't align with the multi-academy trusts and therefore we were never going to get um sort of a, a great partnership going there where we could achieve what everybody could, what was capable of 
and what you're saying is is the reason why I left my deputy headship the exact same reason just on a like a bit of a microcosm of that with me and and the head teacher um so get you you know make sure you know what your values are it's really important thanks so much for joining us Adrian all the best for the new year and hopefully we'll get you back on the podcast again at some point in the future absolutely anytime I'm delighted to it's it's been an absolute pleasure you know I'm a a huge fan so um, (laughs) it's, it's, it's just great to be be featuring brilliant take care Adrian take care bye well Another thank you to Adrian for joining us on the show again because there was so much to talk about. But I do appreciate the time that Adrian has given to share his experience and his wisdom and his insight, which is amazing. There are so many things that you can take from from what Adrian has to say. I have now filled my group coaching programme for January and there will be another cohort. Cohort six will be starting in April spaces are limited if you are interested please do get in touch with me early and reserve your space you can do that by emailing vicky at weleadwell.co.uk and we can have a chat and see whether it's something that will help you in your personal and your professional life because it does have an impact on both whatever you are doing in january do something fun Do something that you enjoy. Don't wait until February half term to do it. Think about what you enjoy. A really good idea is making a list of all of the things that bring you joy and then working your way through them and making sure that you try to do two or three of those things every week. Give yourself some space and some time in the week to actually enjoy yourself. Don't feel the pressure to be at work at 7am, to get up in the dark, to come home in the dark. If you want to have a little bit of a lie-in in the morning and get to work a little bit later, give yourself permission to do that. Likewise, if you want to finish at 3.30 one afternoon to go and have a bit of a walk before it goes dark, give yourself permission to go and do that. It's so important, as Adrian and I were saying, to look after your well-being because unless you are well as a leader you cannot effectively support those other people in your school who need to be supported well that's all we've got time for today thank you so much for listening take care of yourself take care of your staff and lead well This episode of the We Lead Well podcast was brought to you in partnership with Transform Education Coaching, headteacherchats.com and the Teach Well Alliance.